Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting June 18th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, why Ray Kurzweil's days are numbered. We'll get to that in the course of a conversation about what a lot of people refer to as the coming singularity. Our buddies at the magazine IEEE Spectrum devoted their June issue to this subject. The issue is called The Rapture of the Geeks, Separating Science from Fiction in the Technological Singularity. Last week, I went over to Spectrum's offices here in New York City and spoke to two former Scientific American staffers, Glenn Zorpet and writer John Horgan, who contributed the lead article to the issue. Glenn, you're the executive editor here. Why don't you give us an overview Tell us what the singularity is supposed to be for anybody who's coming into this story without a uh, background. And then tell us what the, the whole overall kind of theme of your special issue is. Uh, this, this whole issue originated with a very talented journalist here named Harry Goldstein, who actually runs our website. And he noticed a year or two ago that 2008 would be the 15th anniversary of a famous essay that was written by uh, an author and retired computer scientist named Werner Vinge. And Vinge wrote what is widely regarded as the manifesto that gave rise to this idea of the singularity. As as John noted in, in his piece for us, the basic concept of the singularity in one form or another has been kicking around for decades, if not centuries. But Vinge laid down the modern version, which was that consciousness is, is, there's nothing mystical about it. That consciousness as it occurs in human brains is something that is, is the result of physical processes and biological processes and chemical processes. And because of that, it will be reproducible. And this is where singular, the singularity theory gets contentious because Vinge, as well as some of the other people who believe in this, we call them singularitarians, didn't think it was going to happen in 500 years or 600 years or 300 years. He and others, notably Raymond Kurzweil, and there are a few others, firmly believe that this is going to happen in 20 or 30 that years. That what's going to happen? That, okay, that's a very good question. Different people believe different things, but I'm going to give you a sort of smorgasbord here. The elements of the singularity are machines become super intelligent. This is kind of the the seminal event. What do I mean by super intelligent? Far smarter than human beings. So what happens then? Well, they're smarter than us, so they kind of don't need us. Uh, There's a self-replicating aspect. In other words, okay, they're way smarter than human beings, these machines, and they're going to start reproducing themselves, and they won't need us at that point. But it's even better than that because... To go from generation to generation in the human world is either nine months or 21 years, depending on who you talk to. you got to get pregnant. You've got to buy baby clothes, the whole thing. The kid goes to school and then college, and a couple decades later, you've, you've got a new generation. A computer generation could be a week. A computer generation could be two or three days. The point is, is that you could go from generation to generation and every generation being much smarter than the one before it in a few days. So in a year, you could conceivably have, say, a hundred generations. Each one, if even if the improvements aren't huge, you've got a hundred generations in a year. The machines are stupendously intelligent and capable at this point. The idea of consciousness gets folded in here. And consciousness is is kind of different from intelligence, but consciousness is what makes life meaningful for all of us. Uh, consciousness 
is hard to, de- to define and describe, but it's basically, it's what happens in your, in your brain as a result of sensation, memory, and other stuff. In other words, you take a bite of watermelon, and there's a bunch of chemical stuff that happens in your mouth and nose, but you have this wonderful sensation and taste of watermelon. It's sweet, it's wet, it's, it's got this certain flavor. That's consciousness. It's different from the objective thing that's happening, which is chemicals and stuff happening in your tongue. Consciousness is that experience. And it could be the sound of an oboe. It could be kissing your girlfriend. It could, you know, it could be watching a movie. This is human consciousness. Now, consciousness arises because of these physical and biochemical processes in the brain. Because there's nothing mystical or magical about it, at some point, and because many people believe that it arises somehow as a result of processing, which we believe is more or less what the brain does, not necessarily the kind of processing that happens in computers, but processing of some sort, there is this belief that consciousness will arise artificially when computers are powerful enough and when we get the software right. And there's also a sort of assumption that in this runaway breakthrough in intelligence that's going to occur shortly after we build the first smarter-than-human machine, consciousness will fall out of that. How? No one really knows. I mean, that that's one of the things. That it's just sort of widely assumed that it will happen. If you try to pin them down, well, you know, you, you it, this is one of those things. It's one of those things that people debate, shout at each other. Can, well, I, what, ju- yeah, can I just add a couple of, uh, of um, elaborations on the idea of a singularity? Glenn is really focusing on artificial intelligence, and that was what Binji focused on in his original essay. But over the last 15 years, the the basic vision has gotten more complicated. So one part of it still is that computers are going to become more and more intelligent, and then there's going to be this runaway positive feedback effect as they keep creating more intelligent versions of themselves. But there's also the possibility that advances in nanotechnology and genetic engineering and neuroscience will allow humans and machines to become hybrid cyborgs. So uh, through genetic engineering, we can enhance our intelligence. We can also put uh, electronic chips in our brains. This is already happening. So we won't be completely left in the dust, in other words. Right. So there might be a transitional period where um, humans are enhanced. We still have our flesh and blood selves, but we soup them up with nanotech um brain chips, genetic engineering, and these sorts of things. Uh, Another possibility that I don't think you mentioned is that uh, we're going to become immortal. So this is a big part of Ray Kurzweil's vision in particular. And uh, in some of his writings, he says that this might happen uh, without artificial intelligence at all. So through genetic engineering or even pharmaceuticals, we can extend our lives by hundreds or even possibly thousands of years and become, in effect, immortal. And the holy grail is, once we understand the brain well enough, we could actually upload all the contents of our brain when our bodies start to fail and insert those contents into an artificial body and, for all intents and purposes, achieve immortality. Right. Well, there's, there's two versions. There's an artificial body, which would be a, a super sophisticated mobile robot of some kind. But there's another idea that it might be some elaborate virtual paradise 
In other words, if your if your consciousness is just bits, it doesn't matter if they're running right, around. So in the now real you're world in the matrix and, and, and you're exactly. eating the steak, and you right. don't care that your body's actually exactly. in storage somewhere. So so okay, we've we've talked about all this for you know at least five minutes now, but the whole point of this issue of IEEE Spectrum is to say that all that stuff is garbage. Yeah, we do, we do. Was that the point, Glenn? Well, we, we had a lot of problems with, with, uh, a number of the, of the scenarios. It's Um, interesting because this is a high tech magazine that is deflating the ultimate high tech vision. Yeah. Well, we, we thought who better than us, really? Um, many of the people who subscribe, many of the people who you identify as singularitarians come from the technology world. And as you ably pointed out in your article, John, they don't really understand the brain. And they don't really understand the brain because nobody really understands the brain. And they tend to underestimate it. This is an excellent point. I mean, John, you quote Eric Kandel in your article. Eric Kandel won the Nobel Prize for his groundbreaking research into memory. And that work was done with a sea slug. And basically, they they have teased out the, the most basic workings of memory in an invertebrate. Right. And these other folks like Kurzweil think that within his lifetime, you're going to be able to understand all the workings of the human brain to the point where you can basically replicate it. The human brain is the most complicated object that science has ever confronted. And there's this sort of paradox in neuroscience. Now, neuroscience is, is uh, the fastest growing field in science, I think there are 40,000 people who show up at its annual meeting mm-hmm. every year now. There are tremendous advances in brain scanning technologies. Uh, you have powerful computers that can analyze all the data that come from uh, MRI machines and uh, from research in which you put electrodes into brains. Uh, but the paradox is that the goal of creating a unified theory of the brain that explains how a brain makes a mind seems more distant than ever. And basically so, when you say a brain makes a mind, another way of putting that is how a brain gives rise to consciousness. Right. But, but anything just, you know, you don't even, you can leave consciousness is such a complicated part of this. You can leave aside consciousness, which brings up all sorts of philosophical issues and just ask how we can carry out a conversation like the one we're having right here, how you recognize a can of Coke as a can of Coke, uh, how I can remember what I did this morning before I got here. All these sorts of things are also profoundly mysterious. So you're right, Eric Kandel has focused on one tiny little part of the puzzle. And there have also been other pieces of research that explain one tiny little cog in this giant machine that the brain represents. Nobody has a clue how it all fits together. And that's what I was trying to do and my contribution to this issue is remind people how fantastically complicated and mysterious the brain is. And there's nothing mystical about it. It's not as though the brain is some kind of special supernatural substance or that the mind is that we'll never be able to explain for those sorts of reasons. It's just fantastically complicated. Not to mention that this idea that if you uploaded the contents of your brain and put it into some kind of an artificial body, it seems to be so stuck in in a Cartesian outlook, philosophical outlook, that there's a mind-body split, which seems like all of modern 
biological science is pointing to the idea that no, the body is, is completely integral to consciousness because right. we are informed sensorily through our toes. You are your toes as much as your brain. You're right. I think one of the, the assumptions in artificial intelligence has always been that, um, you know, the brain is this uh, kind of digital computer and uh, the mind is a software program and you can just extract that software program from this flesh and blood three-pound uh, mass in our skulls and put it um, in a laptop or some kind of silicon-based machine. And that's a tremendous assumption. It might be that the you can say maybe the mind is software, but it might be a software that can only run in this particular stuff within which it evolved. Well, it's like Rodney Brooks said in his article, I do firmly believe that the brain is a machine, but whether this machine is a computer is another question. Right. Right. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, if but one, before we go too much yeah. further, I should say there's one other small, maybe not so small aspect of singularity that we left out. We've pretty much covered the bases, intelligent machines, brain boosting, nanotech. The, the other dimension of this, for completeness sake, was covered in our issue by Robin Hansen. That's an economic aspect because there's a theory that it's mostly Hansen's theory, but I, I guess other people subscribe to this, that the, the limiting factor holding back a, a capitalist economy is brain power. Uh, nothing at this point, nothing else really holds it back. Well, resources hold it back, yeah. but brain power is is a is very is a big one. Um, and the more advanced an economy comes, the more brain power becomes a, a bottleneck. Right, and uh, brain power, and brain power, and resources are not completely separate. Right. because you know, look at our oil situation. If the brain power is applied well enough, that resource may not be necessary. Right, right, right. And then, of or it would last longer. Yeah. So, so Hansen's theory is that when you can have much greater than human intelligence and reproduce it, basically mass produce it on, on an incredibly cheap scale, um, running off essentially copies of human brains, uh, that would essentially eliminate that bottleneck to economic expansion. And that would cause econo e runaway economic growth to go along with your other runaway uh, advancement. So in our in this issue, Hansen follows that through to a conclusion, coming up with tiny insect-like robots with human level, greater than human level intelligence, living by the billions in skyscrapers and sort of doing their virtual work um, at, at the equivalent of pennies per day. Um, and this what this leads to, there are two different ideas about what this kind of economic runaway advancement would, would, would ultimately lead to. One is Hans Moravec's idea that there would be this paradise where we would be, where the computers and machines would be our servants. And essentially they would just, for whatever benevolent reasons, we would live this life of luxury in, in this kind of paradise because there wouldn't be much for us to do because we couldn't compete with these machines. But nevertheless, these machines would feel benevolently towards us and we'd, we'd have it made. The other idea, which Hansen and, and to some extent Bill Joy subscribed to, is that there kind of wouldn't be any place for us. We'd be in the way. We'd be stupid and oafish and, and uh, you know, slimy, and we, we really wouldn't would be don't we already, unnecessary. Don't we already have massive quantities of these tiny little entities that uh, do incredible amounts of work on pennies a day? We just call them photosynthetic bacteria. Yeah, but they're they're not as smart as this this these creatures envisioned by uh, Hansen. These creatures envisioned by Hansen would would you know have, you know, quadruple digit IQs and I, I don't know how. Why, they, one would assume that if they were that smart, they'd get they'd 
tire of living by the billions in, in matchboxes in a skyscraper. But okay, let me I, just I, make a point. I forget if you were at Spectrum in 1984 when we did a, I was. that special issue on... With, um, with the bald lady on the cover. With the bald lady on the cover, and it was about all these amazing things that technology was going to bring about, and I actually... We have had, a bald robot on our current cover. Uh, is that right? Yeah. Well, yeah. That issue was filled with predictions about what expert systems would do. So none of them was, came true. None of them came true. So I edited an article by a guy named Frederick Hayes Roth, who was a big I shot remember. in the field of, of artificial intelligence yeah. then. And he said that basically computers were going to become doctors and businessmen and lawyers and air traffic controllers and pilots. They were going to take over all the major professions. And uh, he, he was sort of at a loss to explain what we might do. He thought that um, humans might be psychotherapists. They'd help each other deal with all the problems created by the super, super smart machines. None of that stuff has happened. Artificial intelligence has gone through these cycles of optimism and hype, followed by disillusionment and collapse. That's one of the reasons why I'm so skeptical of some of these claims about uh, the singularity. Obviously, computers have advanced tremendously in certain ways. We've got the internet. I started at Spectrum. I was on, I had a, a an IBM Selectric typewriter yeah. mm-hmm. to write stories. I mean, mm-hmm. probably a lot of our li- listeners won't even know what that is. Now we've got these little skinny laptop computers. So there has been tremendous progress in certain areas, but in other areas like um, psychiatry mm-hmm. or cancer research, I'm, uh, fusion energy. Remember that? That was yeah. going to give us uh, energy too cheap to meter. In certain areas, and this is what the singularitarians don't seem to recognize, science bumps up against limits and it makes very little progress. And for some of these visions that uh, the singularity would require, those sorts of things aren't going to happen. Well, they're bumping up the the greatest, arguably the greatest limit of all, which is understanding how the brain makes the mind, which we know nothing about. Right. Nothing. Or senescence, aging, why our bodies after a certain period right. of time just uh, tend to fail. I mean, there's really no sign that that is going to be solved. And, and I, I want to throw in, uh, I, I became quite convinced by reading Antonio Damasio, neuroscientist, that if you did upload the contents of your brain into this artificial body, you would be mad. You would be literally insane. Mm. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I threw that. <laughs> yes, nice yeah. Yeah. yeah, good, so, good contribution, Steve. So basically, <laughs> basically the uh, the bottom line here is, sorry, Ray, you're gonna die. Uh, yeah, sorry, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> You can check out the IEEE Spectrum issue on the singularity or lack thereof at www.spectrum.ieee.org slash singularity. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, an ad for a snack food was beamed last week in the direction of a solar system 42 light years away. Story two, as this podcast went to press, a science book was expected to sell for about a million dollars. Story three, you know how when you unwrap old chocolate it has whitish specks on it? Well, you don't want to eat that chocolate because those specks are a fungus that turns the chocolate from sweet to sour. And story four, the typical face you make when scared actually provides some survival advantages. 
Time's up. Story one is true. Last week, an ad for a snack food was indeed beamed out in the direction of a solar system 42 light years from Earth. I'm not giving that snack food free advertising here on Earth, so I'll refer to it as blank. So the ad for blank was pulsed out over six hours from high-power radars at the ISCAT European Space Station in the Arctic Circle. The head of the project said, We are constantly looking to push the boundaries of advertising. Ah, but what do we do if the aliens who receive the ad come here and say, take us to your dip? Well, pretty much the same thing as if they say, take us to your leader. But anyway, story two is true. A collection of rare science books was being auctioned in New York City on June 17th. A 1543 edition of Copernicus is expected to fetch about a million bucks. Also on the block is the first ever phone book. Oddly, the book had no numbers. They didn't exist yet. Just names and addresses of the people who actually had phones. You had to tell the operator to connect you with whoever you wanted to ask about Prince Albert in a can. And story four is true. That standard scared face, wide-open eyes, raised eyebrows, can help you survive a scary situation. That facial posturing slightly improves eyesight and allows you to increase the amount of air you bring into your lungs. For more, check out the June 16th episode of the Daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science. All of which means that story three about the white specks on old chocolate being a sour-tasting fungus is totally bogus. Because what is true is that the white specks are merely the fat in the chocolate recrystallized after melting. Researchers reported the finding in a journal called Soft Matter, published by the Royal Society of Chemistry. The white dots are actually called fat blooms, and the chocolate is still perfectly safe to eat. A quick note, on the May 21st podcast, I made an offhand comment about how all the treadmills and stairmasters and health clubs should be wired to generate electricity to solve our energy needs. Apparently, a writer in the New York Times made a similar suggestion in early June, and on June 12th, the Times published a letter by a physicist that noted that 8 million New Yorkers on treadmills could produce about 600 million watts an hour. But we couldn't do it more than an hour or two a day, and we consume 3.4 billion watts a day. So clearly, what we need is solar-powered treadmills. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Siam Podcast. Visit Siam.com for the latest science news, blogs, and all our podcasts. And sign up for the Daily Digest at Siam.com slash daily. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.